Awesome. Hey, welcome to the bridge. Pumped you're here. Glad you're rolling with us. We're going to keep going through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through that this whole summer. Well, kind of half this summer because, you know, the whole pandemic thing. But we're going to keep running through it. And we're going to be in chapter 6. And we're talking about the Lord's Prayer tonight. And let me just say, I am, I'm really excited to be walking through the Lord's Prayer that's in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, last week we talked a lot about pride and the ways that pride can rule in our hearts and the way that we can use all of these things that God has given us in order to walk in a relationship with Him for His glory. And we have then used those means to bring glory to ourselves, to impress other people, to get attention, um, all of those different things. And we talked about pride and how that really plays out into our lives. And one of the examples that Jesus gave with pride was prayer, that we would use prayer in order to impress other people and, and how we might sound or how smart we are, right? The spiritual words that we use, how genuine we may seem as we're praying. And, and we, we briefly touched on prayer this past week, but I thought it would be really, really helpful for us if we just honed in and put a magnifying glass to the Lord's Prayer and how we as believers are to pray to the Father. And I don't know all of you, I don't know your background, but uh, maybe for most of us, prayer can be a little bit of a weird thing. Uh, prayer can be a little bit confusing, maybe a little bit awkward, and um, we, we may have kind of a fear that goes into it because we don't quite understand what prayer is, what prayer isn't. I mean, if you think about it, it can seem like a one-way conversation, right? Like there's just this one-way conversation and I'm in my room talking to myself and nobody is responding, right? It can seem like this really awkward thing. And then when you get past that, you don't exactly know what to pray. I mean, what am I, what am I supposed to say? What am I, how do I do this whole thing, right? And, and we don't have a, a firm understanding. So what we have done for the large part is listen to other people and see how they pray and then we steal the phrases uh, that they use and we bring it into our own uh, prayers. And, and this language has just kind of worked itself into Christianity, which not all of them are bad, but I think there's a few familiar ones that you might recognize. I think for a lot of us, uh, we throw Father God, we, we, just, we just love you, Father God. And we, we say Father God and to start our sentences and then Father God to end our sentences. And we just throw that around the whole time. And would you... Just, just, just bless them, Lord. Bless them. I don't know what that means, Lord, but would you just bless them? God, I just bless Jerry. Or, or would you just be with Jerry right now? Because Jerry, maybe he doesn't know. Oh God, what am I doing? God's not liking this, this prayer action I've got going on. He says, uh, would you just bless them? Would you just be with them? Or before a meal, the always classic Bless this food to the nourishment of our body and bless this body to, to your service, right? We love that one. It's a good one. It's not bad. I'm not saying it bad. I'm just saying we love that language. We, we throw it around. Uh, maybe if you're going on a road trip, you got to pray for traveling mercies, right? I mean, <laughs> you got to pray for your traveling mercies. And then uh, another one that I love all the time that, that I used to hear is that maybe if you're nervous, you're fearful of something and... I don't know, you just kind of feel out of control. You, you pray for the hedge of protection. That's a, that's a lofty one, the hedge of protection. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Um, it's a very terrifying bush that just protects you from everything. Wow. Uh, and it's the, the hedge of protection. So we just take all of these phrases and we integrate them into our prayer life, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not even, they might be really common or cliche to some of you, but that doesn't mean it's these bad things, but I, I do think it proves the point that we don't exactly know the purpose of prayer and the heart behind it. So we've just gleaned from other people and used it. And maybe we pray a lot of things that we don't actually know the meaning behind them. And so I think that's why the Lord's Prayer and Jesus's first public message to the world, I think him bringing this to light and, and telling other people was very critical. It was of the utmost importance because the prayer is a massive part of our relationship with the Lord. And if we don't know how to do it, if we don't know its purpose, we don't know its value, we don't know how to use it, 
then we're going to be missing a massive piece of that relationship and walking in it. So we are going to learn how to pray to the Father from the Son. The Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we call it the Lord's Prayers because Jesus is our Lord. And our Lord, our, um, our Savior teaches us how to pray. There's no one that will know better. He has never been out of step with the Father. He has never broken uh, communion and com- uh, communication with God the Father. And so we get to learn from him. I don't know what that is. I don't, if y'all are seeing me do something, just tell me to stop it. But I, I think every time I like move too much. But anyways, we're going to learn that. And we're going to jump in. And I'm really, really excited uh, for what we've got. So uh, I, I, we briefly mentioned this uh, in last week's message, but uh, we're going to start in verse 5. And this is what Jesus was talking about with pride of, of how not to pray. And he first talks about the Pharisees and the hypocrites. And he says this in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. These were men that were praying out in front of people in the public. And everything that they were saying, their entire motive for being there was to be noticed by men. That they put their identity in being really good Christians to have this great and wonderful resume or checklist or whatever it is. And they just wanted to impress people. And they were using God, they were using prayer to reach their means. And Jesus says, we don't pray for that reason. That's not how we do things. Verse 6, he says, but when you pray, go into your room, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret, secret will reward you. So prayer, as simply as we can put it, is a conversation. It is us getting to talk with God. We don't need to add other things to it. I'm not saying that you can't pray in public. That's not what Jesus is saying. You're going to see he's in first person plural. He says, our father, meaning there's other people around. He's saying, ultimately, it's us talking to God and the people around us are not why we are praying and what we are praying for. And then in verse seven, he says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. We talked about this a little bit this past week, but the Gentiles, these guys didn't really know God. They didn't really have a relationship with him. So they, a lot like us, just stole these phrases and these really spiritual sounding things. And they would just say them over and over and over and over and over again. And they they were just kind of babbling. And it was this confusion that they would pray to to the God of heaven and earth. And often these Gentiles, they would pray to all different types of gods. And they would just say these phrases and they didn't have any kind of meaning. It was just this robotic, mechanical repetition. And it shows that they didn't actually want to commune and have a relationship with God. They just thought it was good luck. They just said, if I talk enough and I say the right things and, I, and it's maybe like this magical spell, right? It's Harry Potter all of a sudden. They're like, expecto patronum. Ah, no, it can't be that. And you just say it over and over again. And maybe one of these is going to unlock the blessing of God. And if I say it enough, I do it enough, and I, I maybe yell it or whatever it is, then I'm going to get God's blessing. And I think the sad irony of what we see there, of, of what not to do from Jesus is that is exactly what the Lord's Prayer has become today, right? I think not to put them on blast, but football teams, right? I've watched this Netflix documentary of this, I don't remember the name of it, but they were all playing football and their coach was just, I mean, every word in the book that you can imagine just screaming at his football players and uh, saying all of these things and calling them this, that, and the other, all of this messed up stuff. He said, all right, everybody, it's the end of his just curse word laced message, inspirational message, I guess, to his football team. He said, all right, buddy, grab a knee, grab a brother. And they all like, <laughs> they hit their knee, they all grab a brother. And what do they, what do they pray? The Lord's Prayer. And I'm like, what, what are we doing here? Like, why are we saying all of these things and then hitting the Lord's Prayer at the end? 
it's like a lucky rabbit's foot, right? And afterwards, they slap the top of the door, and they say, let's go fight wind. And that's what the Lord's Prayer has become. We think it's this magical hocus pocus that we rub the, uh, I almost said genie's belly. I don't think you rub the genie's belly. Uh, the, the, the genie's lamp. And we think, man, if I just do this, then God's going to love me. God's going to notice me. God's going to get this blessing. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer is not a magical spell. The Lord's Prayer is a model for prayer. It's an example for us to follow. Meaning we can pray more than what the words that we see here. We are not enclosed to these words. Jesus was giving us a, a guideline a foundation of principles and ideas of things that we can pray for so that we can build on top of them. And so as we go through this tonight, you're going to see the model, this guideline, the structure that Jesus has put in place so that the rest of our lives, we can pray for these things in our lives. And then notice in verse eight, it says, so do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I think for a lot of us, that verse almost trips us up. Say, wait, God the Father knows what I need before I even pray? Some of you might be thinking, well, if God's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-omnipresent, he, he knows all of these things, and if he knows what I need before I even pray it, then what's the purpose of prayer, right? I mean, that's a kind of a logical question. Why am I praying if God's already got the answers? If God already knows what I need, then what's the purpose? And maybe because prayer has a different purpose than just getting things from God. I'm here to tell you that prayer is about a relationship with the Father. That God has invited us to a relationship with him. And we don't just come to the throne room of God and say, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. But there is a different purpose beyond the material, physical needs of our day. He knows what we need, and still he invites us. And still he wants to have a relationship with us. So in verse 9, Jesus starts off and he says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. He starts off with our Father. First thing we're doing is you're seeing a personal relationship, right? This is a personal relationship. That's first person plural, our. Meaning there is a possession there that not in a controlling sense, but in a belonging sense. That we are talking to the father that we belong to. That he is not just a God or the God, but he is our father that we can have a relationship with the Lord. And that's a gift, that's a privilege, that's something that means something to us that we get to walk in day after day after day, that it is our Father. And then when I think of fathers, there's care, there's comfort, there's protection, there's counsel, there is guidance, there's security. There's all of these things that comes from a father. And I know for some of you, when you think of your earthly father, your dad here on earth, there's not a positive resonance that comes from you. There's not a positive uh, thought. There's not a good example to follow, right? You said, I, I didn't receive care. I didn't get comforted. I didn't have security. I didn't get protection. I didn't get those things. And often, I, I think there's a lot of truth to this, that we reflect our earthly father onto God. And so the things that we struggle with, the problems that we have, the, uh, the hurt, the wounds, the scars that have come from our earthly fathers, we reflect onto God. If your earthly father was distant and non-existent, we view God the same way. If you had a performance-driven dad that was really harsh, that was really critical, that it was never enough, that's how you view God. We don't accept grace from God because we never found it in our dad. But the good news is that our heavenly father, God is not a reflection of our earthly father. He's the perfection of it. 
that everything that you missed out on, everything that you were lacking from your earthly father is fulfilled, fulfilled in your heavenly father. And that is really good news because he's invited to a relationship with him. And we have constant 24 access to him. And he has given us a book. He has given us his word to remind us, to encourage us, to, to train us, to teach us, to give us the ways to know him, to live for him. Someone once told me that uh, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, is the basic instructions before leaving earth. Pretty incredible. And pretty incredible. I like that a lot. Uh, because we're only here for a little bit, right? This is temporary. But God has set us up for an eternity that we're not just living for here on this earth. We're living for an eternity. And these are the basic instructions. This is the manual. It says, this is how you know me, that God has revealed himself to us. And this is how you live a life of purpose, of value, of significance that lasts for an eternity. And he has made that evident to us. And so we have a father. He says, our father. So the Lord protects he provides comfort, care, um, strength, encouragement, guidance, counsel, all of those things for us to walk in. So he's our father. Who is in heaven? When we say that God is in heaven, it's less about location and it's more about nature. It's less about that just God is in heaven and it's more about the God that is in heaven um, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this. It says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So when we come to God, we come to him with a reverence and a respect. Because he's the creator. He is the potter, we are the clay. All of us, all of our lives cater to him because he is the creator he is the designer he is god of the universe so even though he is our dad he is our father we have a personal relationship he's still the god of the universe so we come with respect and a reverence and an awe and adoration for him and, and uh i think this story is actually really helpful i was watching a documentary of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, one of the presidents, 34th, I think, something like that. And he was like the supreme commander. I don't know if that's the word, but that's the word we'll use, of uh, the allied forces in World War II uh, going up against the Nazis and Hitler and uh, the Axis powers. And there was a point where David Eisenhower, which is Dwight's, uh, Dwight's son, was following him around. And this was near the end of the war of World War II. And his dad goes out, opens the doors out onto this balcony. And his son is right there behind him. And the moment he walks out there, thousands and thousands of soldiers in an instant are in full salute with all their attention on him. And David has probably one of the best responses. He says, at that moment, I knew my daddy was a lot more than my daddy. He says, yeah, he's my dad, but he's also the stinking supreme commander of the <laughs> world right now. And so we have to view God as both, that he is our father who is in heaven, that he is preeminent, he is holy, he is above all. There is none beside him, there is none before him, there is none behind him. It is God alone. And we treat him as such. So this is how we address him with a, a personal understanding, but also knowing his nature and our reverence for him. And this is what Jesus says. He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a word that we don't really use anymore, but it essentially means to be recognized as holy. It's to recognize as holy. When something is holy, it is set apart. It is above all that nothing comes close to it that it is set apart from all that is saying god is set apart from all his creation right that there's no one beside him there's no one else on the rankings it's god and nothing else and we're saying hallowed be your name god hallowed be your name so we are acknowledging and praising god as the greatest person the greatest being in the universe 
And we want God to be treated and viewed as such, right? So that's what we're saying. We're saying, God, hallowed be your name, your name, your reputation. Lord, we want your name to be treated with the highest honor, with the highest respect, that all would bow and obey you, that all would praise and worship you. And so that's a part of what prayer is. We're praising God for who he is. We're worshiping him for who he is. We're saying, hallowed be your name. And that's the opportunity that, when we, that we have when we pray. And honestly, if you think about it, when we sing worship songs, we're praying. We're not just kind of singing in this room to pump ourselves up before we sit through 40, me- uh, 40 minutes of maybe a boring message. We're praying to God. We are ascribing to him all that he is. All that he is. This is our response. Prayer is our response to God, and we are worshiping him. Saying, hallowed be your name. And so we have this big picture idea. But there's also a personal idea when we say, hallowed be your name. This is also an opportunity for us to reflect on our own hearts. That we can reflect on our own hearts and our lives. And we ask ourselves, do we treat God with the highest respect and honor? Do I live a life that reflects who God is? There's often times that we can disrespect people, right? That they have a much higher ranking. They have all of these things. Maybe it's David Eisenhower uh, with his dad, that supreme commander, that these thousands and thousands of people will stand at attention and do whatever he asks of them because he has the authority. Yet David Eisenhower, his son, won't eat his green beans at dinner, right? And there's a moment like, hey, you're not understanding who I am, right? (laughs) You're missing the point. You're disrespecting me. Uh, silly analogy to ask ourselves, when we say hallowed be your name, it's a heart check for us. Say, God, am I treating you as holy? So when we pray this, we're desiring, we have a longing for God's name to be honored in our lives. That we can say it and our lives back it up. The way that we act, the way that we treat him is obvious, that his reputation is lifted up And it's not like a game of Mario Kart where God has just plummeted down the standings and all of a sudden he's lost uh, his rankings. It's not like that. It's knowing that we're sinful and that our hearts, our lives, we begin to drift, right? Our emotions begin to change and it only takes a matter of days where our love, our adoration, our honor, um, our desire for God to be glorified in our lives just starts to drift. And so every time we pray, this is an opportunity for us to check and say, Lord, hallowed be your name. May it be so in my life that I honor you, that I love you, that I adore you. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus' prayer here has a twofold application. I'm going to keep playing on this idea of a global and personal sense. That when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, and I say that in a global sense, there's a meaning there. There's a request there. There's a desire that I have. And then there's also a desire that I have in my own life. So first, globally, what do I mean by that? Is that we have a desire for God's kingdom to be established throughout the entire world. We have a desire for God's kingdom his rule, his ways to be established throughout the entire world. We know this is going to happen in Revelation when Jesus returns. Uh, We know in Revelation that Jesus will come back. Uh, It says the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and the Lord will descend and he will put an end to evil. Uh, The new heaven and new earth will come down and there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying and tears and pain. And all of the things of this world that we experience now will be done away with. We have that desire, right? Especially in our world today. We have a desire that we want to beg and ask God that your kingdom would come and this world would be done away with. Because we don't want it anyway. So we know that second coming, there will be a full and final answer uh, to this asking. But there's also a reality for today that we ask God's kingdom to come. 
Jesus when he was on the earth. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it wasn't the full final thing that we read in Revelation. It was Jesus reigning and ruling in the hearts of men. That as people were converted, as people's eyes were opened to who Jesus is and what he came to do, and they surrendered their lives to him, and the spirit would dwell in them, that their lives began to change. And they no longer lived for themselves, they no longer lived for the world, but they lived for Jesus. And the kingdom advances. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, advances all throughout the world. One person after another, after another, after another. And so what we're doing here is we're praying for revival. Say, God, would you do that here? Would you do that here in our midst? Would you change the lives of the people in this city? God, would your kingdom come? That this world that, of Denton, Texas and beyond is filled with evil, it's filled with brokenness, it's filled with hate and anger and depression and anxiety and brokenness and war and all of these things. And it's in each of us. And our desire is that Jesus and who he is and his spirit would take over. And he would transform our world one person at a time. And that everyone that was marked with all of this brokenness would be changed. And their lives would be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. That Denton would be a place of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That our lives would change. And this is a desire, this is a longing that we have for God to establish his rule in the world. And so we have this global idea and here's the cool part, that as we begin to pray that more and more and more, and we ask God to do a work around us, guess who gets excited about it? You do. That your heart begins to change. And you begin to buy into the very things that you're praying. And the very things that you are asking God to do in your midst, God starts to use you to do. And he sends you out, he commissions you that you begin to tell the gospel and you share the gospel and you share uh, the God that changed your life and you offer that to others. Just the way that my life was changed, your life gets changed. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter one, I think it's verse six, and he's talking about how the gospel was advancing throughout the world. It was uh, bearing fruit and increasing all throughout the world, wherever they went. And then he says, just as it is in you, bearing fruit and increasing. So just as the gospel goes forth from Denton uh, to Decatur, to Ponder, possibly, maybe, Crum, you never know. Uh, all of these different places, I'm from Crum, I can say that. Uh, into all of these places that the gospel goes forth and begins to change, it begins to change you. And its influence is covering more and more ground in your life. This is what we call sanctification. It's the process of being made holy, that we look more and more like Jesus as the days draw near. And that's the personal part of this prayer. We say, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in me? And I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live for my flesh. I don't want to live for sin anymore. Would your will be done in me? I want to live for you. Would you have your way in me? This is a song we're singing, I surrender. God, I want to know you more. Do a work in me. And that's the power of the gospel, that when the gospel works in us, we're changed from the inside out, day after day after day. On earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is a place of perfect obedience. That everyone always, everything always obeys with immediate, joyful, perfect, and full obedience. And we desire that on earth. Right now it's delayed, reluctant disobedience, right? That there is no obedience to God. But in heaven it will be. And so our desire is that heaven would look like earth. That we would look more and more like the sun day after day. And so this is our way to ask God uh, to continue his work, the advancement of the kingdom in this world as he uses us as believers for that movement.
that we were made for this movement. And we also ask and we also long that God would continue to work on us. That his rule, his influence would continue to work on us to a greater, greater obedience until we return back home in heaven. Then in verse 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. This is the first and only time that Jesus actually mentions anything physical or material uh, in the prayer. This is the only material and physical need that Jesus talks about. And it's a really simple one, right? It's a very simple request. It's our basic needs today. He says, Lord, bread today. I think that's, that's a heart check for us because the majority of our prayers can consist of material, physical needs. If we call them even needs, it's probably more of material, physical wants that we have, right? We want the Corvette. Uh, we want the Corvette. We, we pray for the Corvette. We pray for this guy. We pray for this girl, uh, not in like a bless them way, but a give them to me kind of a way. <laughs> and, and we have all of these desires, all of these physical things. And uh, we pray for the test. We pray for this thing. We pray for college. We pray uh, to get into this. We pray to get approved for that. Uh, we have all of these material, worldly, temporary needs. And what I'm saying is, these aren't necessarily bad things because God's going to be the giver of those things or he's not. But I'm saying if 95% of our prayer life is material and physical things, I think we're missing the point because 95% of Jesus' prayer is theological things. It's about the state of our soul and the posture of our heart before the Lord. That his prayer life, that Jesus in the way he guides us is all Christ God-centered. It's about his glory. It's about his kingdom being advanced. It's about our lives being obedient to it. It's about him. Not about us. And so I think we need to shift our prayer lives. I think we need to move it in a different direction from maybe where our heart has been for however long. And I'm not saying we need to stop praying for our basic needs, because Jesus does. In fact, if we don't pray for our basic needs, if we are not asking God to provide, I think it shows a heart of independence, a heart of pride, and a, a lack of humility. Because the reality is, God is the provider for all of these things. And I know in our day and age, we don't really think so, because we we have our high-paying jobs, $10 an hour, minimum wage, all that stuff. And, and uh, we have parents that provide and do all of that stuff. But we have to realize that God is the ultimate provider of all of these things. And maybe he's provided the means for you. I think Tom talks about this all the time. He says, stop, uh, <laughs> he says, stop praying and asking God uh, for a hole while leaning on a shovel. I.e., quit asking God for the meat on the table, if he's given you means to provide it, if he's given you a job, that's God providing, that's God doing all of those things. But we always have to come with a dependence and a humility and a trust, knowing it's all coming from God. And the moment that we think we're self-sufficient, the moment that we think we've got this thing covered is the moment that we've missed it. We've missed an opportunity to praise God for his provision. The things that we take for granted are from God. So that's why we pray before meals. One, it's a remembrance of the, of the blood that was shed by Jesus and his body that was broken for us, that we remember it. That's why we take communion. But even before meals, we thank God for it because it's ultimately come from him. He is the creator of all of these things. So we don't want to live our lives on autopilot. We want to have Godward hearts. We want to pray without ceasing, knowing that God is always moving, God is always providing even the breath in our lungs. And we can handle that in a humble way. We can depend on him and we can trust in him. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, the bummer of our lives as Christians is that we're not perfect. We sin. 
we are broken people and we mess up every single day. We have all probably messed up today. We have all sinned. We have all disobeyed God, his ways, his rules, the desires that he has for our lives. But when we sin, we do not lose our salvation. We haven't just lost everything. God doesn't just chunk us out and say, I'm done with you the moment we sin. And so as you read this verse here in verse 12, when he says, and forgive us our debts, it's not a prayer for salvation. Maybe it was for somebody that uh, was not a believer in that moment that was listening uh, to a forgiveness of their debts, of the wrath that was stored up for them, that needed forgiving, that needed a savior that Jesus was. But for us as believers, we can still and still should ask for forgiveness. Why? Because we sin. And it's not, we're, we're not re-asking for salvation we're asking God to restore us to fellowship. Why? Because when we sin, take this example. Maybe you have a, a friend that you're close to, a sibling, whatever that is. You probably get in fights. You probably say things that you shouldn't. You probably do things that you shouldn't. You probably feel things that you shouldn't, right? You get some anger. You get hurt feelings. Uh, you maybe have a little bit of a grudge that you hold. And all of that comes from sin, that when we wrong somebody, there is distance, there is a tension there, there's a frustration there. And in order for us to renew that fellowship, to reconcile together, what needs to happen? We need to have a conversation. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to confess. We need to admit that what we said was wrong. We need to admit that what we did was wrong. I think the last big fight, like physical fight that I had with my brother um, ended with me like holding him up and he then, well, because he was a karate uh, guy, black belt, second, second degree. I don't even know what that means, but it's just ridiculous. And he's like a taller guy than me and he's just all skin and bones and lanky. And so he would just do this like weird karate thing and just pop, 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 pop all the time. And I would just sit back there and wear those things trying to get into him. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but here we are. And uh, I would just try and maneuver my way past his kicks and then there would get to a point where I'd finally get past the kicks and I'm a bigger guy, he's a skinny guy and that's when I start to win, right? That the, the, all of a sudden the fight shifts in my advantage and in that moment when I get up next to him and I start to grab him, we're older, this was like a week ago, so it's not a big deal. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It was high school or something. And uh, I started to grab him, and all of a sudden, he just goes, boom, right into my nose. Just right into my nose. And I'm not going to stop. I'm actually fueled by anger at that point. <laughs> and uh, I keep going. I think I'm slamming. This is graphic. Here we are. But uh, in all of this, the fight stops. I think my mom noticed, and, you know, she screams, and I'm just gushing with blood. And he's probably got a concussion from the back of his head against the wall. And both of us had to admit our wrongs, right? Because before that happened, I mean, we went to our rooms and there was no conversation, right? There was frustration, there was anger, uh, there was a distance between us. And that distance would not be remedied. There would be no reconciliation until there was a conversation. And that we had to admit our wrongdoings. We had to ask for forgiveness. You say, man, what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And it's in those moments that we reconcile that and we can have fellowship as we once had before. And in the same way that when we wrong God, when we disobey, there's a, a distance that happens. I always say that sin darkens and it deadens and it brings distance. It darkens our hearts. It darkens our emotions that we don't feel the same way. We feel cold, right? We feel just distant. We feel off when we've been straying, when we're backsliding. And we just feel far from God and we don't feel things. We don't get excited in worship and all of those things because sin darkens. Sin deadens. It deadens our hearts. It, it, it darkens our minds that our thoughts, everything is off, the way that we think, the way that we view. We don't think God loves us anymore because we're basing it off these feelings and not on the truth of his word. And we just stray away and it brings distance. And so in those moments, we have to come to the Lord. 
often we have to confess, we have to repent. To repent means to change our minds. We are changing our minds about what we have done, that God was right and we were wrong. That's what we're saying. Confession, the word homo logeo. Logeo means to speak. Homo means the same. Saying we are agreeing with God in that moment. So God, I really thought this would be a good idea. I, my flesh longed for this, but you're, you were right. I was wrong. God, I'm sorry. Your way is better than my way. Your way, the, the, the life of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is better than walking by the flesh. And so we are aligning ourselves back with God as we ask for forgiveness. We're aligning ourselves with God because we have gotten off. It's when you're at the beach, right? And you set your stuff down, you get your blanket, you have your sunscreen, you have your picnic basket, you have all that stuff. And then you go out into the water, you start to throw a frisbee, you throw a football, you do whatever it is that you do in the water and you're playing there for a while and it's been five minutes. And then you look back to the shore and you're looking for your stuff and all of a sudden it's like half a football field down there. And you're like, what the heck happened? How did I get this far? We naturally drift. And so what we do is we have to come back to center. We have to realign ourselves with home base, with the standard. And so what we have to do day after day is realign ourselves with God and his word and with fellowship with him. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying this is our heart check and forgive us our debts to restore fellowship with God. And then see what happens after that. As we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a pretty good thing to pray in a prayer, right? God, just in the same way that I've been forgiving other people, would you forgive me? That's a look in the mirror, right? Are you forgiving people? Are you extending grace and love and mercy to other people the same way God has to you? Ephesians 4, 32 it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Here's our example. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Just as God in Christ forgave you. So this is a heart check for us as Christians. Because we are known for our love. He says, this is how they will know you. By your love for one another. So when we're missing these notes... It doesn't look good. If you want a really good example, I won't read this story, but it's in Matthew chapter 18. I think it's verses 23 through 35. And it's a, it's a rich man, a master, and he has a lot of different servants. And at one point he says, I'm going to get all of my records straight, i.e. there are a lot of people that he had uh, lent out money to or resources, goods, whatever it was. And he said, I'm going to make sure all of these people pay me back. So he starts to call them in, and one of his servants uh, comes in, and he owes him a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. So much money uh, that it would take him 150 years of daily wages to repay him. 150 years of daily wages. How do you like that? That's a lot of money, right? So this man comes in and he says, do you have my money? And the guy hits the ground and begins to plead to God. And he says, I will pay it back. I'll work. I'll do all of these things. I'll pay it back. He says, I, my family's in a hard time. He doesn't actually say that, but I imagine it. It's the moment. Uh, he's saying all of these things. He's begging. He says, I'll pay it back. And it says, the master had compassion and mercy on him. And you know what he did? He canceled the debt completely. Completely. That is Jesus' love for us. God's love for us that he canceled our debt that we could not return. He canceled it completely. And we did nothing. All we did was hit our knees and acknowledge that we couldn't do it. That we were in need and only he could. And so the servant goes from this place and I think he is freaked out by, by all of these things, even though he has just been shown immense grace. And the servant goes to somebody that owes him money. 
says this guy owned, owed him 100 days worth of money, 100 days of working. Remind you, let me just remind you, hours, minutes even before this, he was just shown grace and forgiveness and his debt of 150 years was canceled in an instant. And he goes right out to a person that owed him 100 days worth of wages. And the man says the same thing. He says, I'll pay it back. I just don't have it right now. And he begs and pleads just the same way the servant did to the master. And he grabs him by the neck. And he says, no. And he throws him in jail because of the debt that he wouldn't pay back. 100 days versus 150 years. The debt, the difference is insurmountable. And guess what happens? The master hears about it. He hears that the servant that he showed grace and mercy and forgiveness to did not extend that compassion to others. And that was the it. That was it. That was the end for the servant that the master, well, you can read it. That's, that's my cliffhanger. Now you'll go read the word after home. <laughs> nice. So in the same way, this is what Jesus is saying. Saying you were forgiven an insurmountable debt for all of your wrongdoing, all of your disobedience, all of your sin. In the same way you extend that to others. And if we don't, we're missing it. Honestly, if we don't, I think it's pride in us. Because we, something sneaking in us, this brokenness in us, think we had something to do with our salvation. That we brought something to the table. And so if other people don't bring something to the table, then they're missing it and it reveals pride in us. If we are unwilling to show grace and extend forgiveness to others, then we think we had, to, we had something to do with the forgiveness we were shown. So this is an opportunity for us to check our hearts as we're praying to God. To God excuse me. And then finally, verse 13. It says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Maybe yours says, but deliver us from evil. Same idea there. The evil one is Satan, of course. And the evil, the temptation, all of those things come from him. And you might be thinking that's kind of a weird prayer uh, or a weird request of God to not lead us into temptation because you're thinking of James uh, 1.13. It says, God does not tempt anyone. He didn't tempt himself. Nothing comes from that. But we are enticed. We are lured away by our own sin. So what Jesus is asking us to pray in that moment is really not about the temptation. It's about the second part. To deliver us from the evil one when temptation comes. That when temptation shows up in our lives, we need to ask God for grace and strength to fight. Because I think we all know it's a fight, right? We have these lingering sins, we have these addictions, we have these things that we want to break through and we want to be out of our lives, but we just go back to it again and again and we're exasperated, we're broken over it. We have all of these things and we know we cannot walk in purity alone. And I think what Jesus prays this is a continual reminder that we're always at war. That we are always at war. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded. Be watchful or be on alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is constantly lurking, constantly prowling around, waiting for moments of weakness to throw temptation our way to destroy us, to steal, kill, and destroy and so when we pray, we're praying for the journey. So God, would you be with me? Would you help me? Because I'm at war and there is an adversary that is constantly at my heels waiting for me to trip up. And I cannot do it alone. I need you. And so we go to the Father. And we ask for strength to resist temptation and we rely upon him. Because we know we can't do it. There is no amount of willpower. There is no amount of discipline and strength. There is no amount of trying harder and promising this time that will never be there again that will do it. That's not where it comes from. Our strength comes from the Lord and relying upon him. And this is what it looks like. 
1 Corinthians 10.13. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've memorized it. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It says, there is nothing you have been tempted with that is not common to man. You're not alone. You're never alone. There's people with you. It says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's huge. That is truth. You will never be tempted beyond your ability. You will never be tempted because God is faithful. But with the temptation, when the temptation comes, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so as we ask this from the Lord and we talk about, Lord, would you deliver me from the evil one? Do not lead me into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. One, it's not a bad thing to not want to be tempted. I don't want to be tempted because I know my flesh is so willing in its broken and lowest moments. But when, and I say when, temptation comes, God is faithful and he has provided a way of escape, meaning we can walk away. We can walk away. There is never a moment when temptation is too much. Even though our flesh wants it, we walk away. And it's not a waiting game of, man, I still want this sin, so I guess it hasn't been broken. He's saying, no, we're not enslaved to it anymore as believers. That God has already made a way. And the way is the cross. That he conquered sin and death. That we are not enslaved to sin anymore. And so when you feel that, when you have, when your flesh is roaring out and it desperately wants to give in, would you walk by faith? Would you trust that what God has done is done? Look to him. Look to him. So we look to the Father in our time of need and we walk away. That's what we do. We walk away in the strength that he gives us. Not because we don't want to sin, because we do. We absolutely do. We walk away by faith, trusting that God has conquered it. He's conquered sin and he has freed us from it. We aren't enslaved to the flesh anymore. We walk by faith in the strength of God and we do all this by prayer. We do all this by prayer. All of this comes back to a dependence and a trust and a faith in the Lord that we can't live without prayer. An old theologian. Sorry, I thought I was going to burp. <laughs> We're good. An old theologian. Uh, said, you can no better live life as a Christian without prayer than you can live life without breathing. Imagine that. Prayer is to a Christian what air is to a human. Says, we pray without ceasing. We need it. We can't live without it. It is our life source. It is our sustenance, our strength for the journey. We can't live without it. And the moment you think you can, you lose. Isn't that true? The moment we kind of look around and we say, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, it's been this long since I've gone back to that. It's been this long. I've been in this, I'm that. All of a sudden, a week goes by and we're like, how the heck did I get this far? How am I in this again? Because we stopped trusting in the Lord. Because we stopped praying putting our dependence in him. So in summary, as we pray, it is our relationship with him. We address God as our father, our personal relationship that we belong to him and we have a rite of passage. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying our father, that he is our access. Our father who is in heaven, that this is his nature. This is who God is, and we have a reverence for him. And then in verse 10, we pray for revival. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We praise God, we worship God for who he is. We have a reverence for him. We pray for revival in the world. We pray for revival and a reforming of our lives and of our hearts. Verse 11, we have a dependence and a trust for our daily needs. And we have a gratitude for, uh, for him, for his provision. 
verse 12, we have repentance, a confession that we are realigning ourselves with God day after day after day, a restoration of fellowship. In 13, we have a seeking of grace and strength for the journey. Seeking of grace and strength for the journey that we want to live for him. I mean, you notice that in there, that we're not praying for strength for this journey if we don't actually want to honor God. So we're saying, God, I want to honor you, but my flesh is weak, but praise God, the Spirit's willing. That in all of our askings, in all of our longings, God knows what we need before we ever pray. And so we're, we're going to have a closing song, but after that, um, I mean, I think it's easy for us in our lives to, to maybe hear something like the Lord's Prayer or any scripture that we walk through as believers and we hear it and we say, oh, that's good. And then we don't actually follow it up at all. In a later part of a different gospel, Jesus is talking to uh, people and he's going through just, just training them and teaching them and talking with them and uh, Pharisees were there and they were going back and forth with him and, and he says, you know these things. He says, you know these things. He's like, it's not a question of whether you know it or not. He says, at this point, you know you need to pray. You know you need to trust in God. You know you need to do all these things. But the blessing is in the doing. The blessing comes from living it out. This is more than knowing. It's living what you know. You can't live it if you don't know it. But it's more than knowing it. And so what we're going to do after this, and, and we want you to make sure you're comfortable with this, but after we have our closing song, we just want you to grab a, a, a group of people if you want, whether it's another person or three people or four people or just you by yourself, and you can spread out in this room, and we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray. And you can pray this exactly as you want. Just know that. It's what you are praying. There's nothing special in these words specifically. It's the heart behind it. And we just want you to pray genuinely. We want you to pray, pray honestly, however long you want. We just want you to get together and pray that we are people that do the word of God, not just hear it, but live it out. And we hope, our hope, our prayer is that this would become something that is consistent in your life. It's who you are. It's what you do. You have a relationship with God that he has invited you into. And you view prayer not as a responsibility or an obligation that you bring in and you do reluctantly because you just kind of feel like you have to, to check it off the list in case someone asks you or so you feel better about it because that's where your performance is because that's how it was with your earthly father. But it's a privilege. It is the greatest privilege in the world that you get to talk with the God of the universe. Here's the reality of prayer. It's not to change everything. It's not to get God to change this circumstance or to change that circumstance. It's that God changes us. And then the more we pray, the more we talk, the more we communicate with him, the more our heart is aligned with his. And the more that when we start to pray these things, we start to live these things. And we start to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that we want to live that out that we want to be a part of the advancement of the kingdom, that we don't want to give into temptation, we don't want to do all these things, God changes our hearts through prayer. Yes, God changes circumstances. God uses prayer for a lot of different means. But it changes us, and it's for his glory. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. And I pray for myself, I pray for these people here that our lives would reflect you. That there would never be a question of the most important thing in our lives. That we can't help but talk about you. We can't help but brag about you. We can't help uh, but worship you and praise you and tell other people about you because of how much you have done, because of who you are. 
I pray that we would be like proud little kids of their mom and dad. That we go to school like first graders and all we want to talk about is what our daddy's done and who our daddy is and what our daddy does. That we are proud of you. That we are in awe of you. We adore you and we love you. God, I pray that your kingdom will come. I pray that your rule, your reign, and your ways would be established on this earth, in this world, in our government, all around us. And I pray that your rule and your reign would be established in our hearts. And it wouldn't be our ways. We wouldn't live for ourselves and our temporal pleasures. We would live for you. And we would live for you completely. And I pray that we would be people that don't just hear your word and nod our heads and are kind of encouraged by it, but we live it out. That we trust fall into a lifelong pursuit of you, of full obedience with all that we are, because we know you're worth it. That you're going to catch us. And it's going to be good, because you are good. You are a father that loves, that cares, that is near. And we thank you for that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.